Today at Reader's Corner, Chris Pavoni, author of the novel Two Nights in Lisbon. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. On today's program, Chris Pavoni talks with us about his thrilling new novel, Two Nights in Lisbon. The book follows Ariel Price, who wakes up in Lisbon one morning alone. Her husband is gone. No warning. No note. He's not answering his phone. Something is wrong. She starts with hotel security, then the police, then the American embassy, each confronting questions she can't fully answer. What exactly is John doing in Lisbon? Why would he drag her along on his business trip? Who would want to harm him? And why does Ariel know so little about him? Chris Pavoni is the author of five international thrillers, The Paris Diversion, The Travelers, The Accident, The Expats, and the book we're going to be talking about today, Two Nights in Lisbon. His novels have appeared on the bestseller list of the New York Times, USA Today, and the Wall Street Journal, and they've been translated into two dozen languages. Chris Pavoni, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. Well, Chris, you're a a novelist that's uh, a little bit out of the box for me because uh, uh, you've been in almost every aspect of publishing at one time or another in your career. Uh, Maybe we could begin with uh, your telling us how you arrived at that momentous decision when you realized you didn't want to be an editor anymore. How about being an author? And at one point, I think I heard that you actually were in your youth, <laughs> your younger years, let's say, a, a cookbook editor. I was, yeah. yeah. And I, I loved being a book editor, but I'd always intended to try to become a novelist. But when I got out of college, I didn't want to put all my eggs into that one really flimsy basket because so many people try and so few succeed. And I didn't want to have this sort of career where if it didn't work out for me, I wouldn't really know it until I was 40 or 50 years old or older, at which point it would be too late to do anything else. And I would be an unhappy person. So instead I chose to pursue a career in publishing where if I never became a writer, I could still have this freestanding really satisfying and fun career in the world of writing and books, um, just not my own. And for a good couple of decades, I really, really enjoyed it. I I loved being a book editor. I, I was a nonfiction editor primarily. It's a wonderful job to spend every day talking to the leading experts in their fields, whatever those fields are. The person who's the most expert in it is an interesting person with interesting things to say. And that's largely what being a nonfiction book editor is about. Um, But as my 40th birthday approached, I realized that if I was ever going to get around to writing, I really needed to do it now. And I quit my job and started writing. And my wife promptly got a job in Luxembourg. Uh, We'd been living in New York City. And she had this fantastic opportunity. And it was also an opportunity for me to move abroad, to live in a place I'd never dreamed I'd live. Um, and to become a different type of person, leading a different type of life. So I did. We did. And I, I started writing my first novel, The Expats, while we were over there. And that was in 2008. Um, and it has, uh, so far, it has panned out for me. Oh, it sure has. Well, this, this has just been amazing. I mean, as I said earlier, um, I've so much enjoyed the twists and the turns of this novel. There's no way anyone, I'd 
bet anyone. I'd put the mortgage on it. Nobody's going to figure out exactly where this book is going. But before yeah. we get before we get there, um, what's it like making? I don't think our re- readers. I know I sure don't have much of a understanding of the relationship between an editor and an author. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I wonder if you could help us with how does it work for the novelist when all of a sudden you're no longer doing the editing, but you are being edited? Is that any kind of a difficult transition when, uh, <laughs> hey, wait a minute, guy, I used to do this. I know better than you do. <laughs> well, yeah, knowing better is not is not really the operative idea. I, right. I, you know, reading is is a very subjective experience, and editors are good at what they do when they read in a way that corresponds with the way that other readers in the world read. And so they recognize things that readers want to read. They recognize problems that readers would want solved and present those problems to authors in a way that authors can hear without feeling defensive or attacked and in a productive way. And being an editor is a a difficult balance of on the one hand, being this person who's responsible for essentially managing products. And those products are, those consumer products are books. And at any given moment, a book editor is managing 20, 30, 40 projects that are somewhere along the line of development between, you know, just being signed up as an idea based on a one page pitch to being in the marketplace out in bookshelves for a year and trying to figure out how to sell more copies and get more publicity for the paperback launch. And it's a long-term process for an editor to manage these books over the course of their their lives. And largely, a lot of it goes on without the author's knowledge. And the part that's really intimately editor to author, the part of, of addressing the text and trying to figure out how this book can be better, um, that's still largely just a matter of opinion. And what editors do is present the author with, here's five pages of notes of what I think can be better about this book. Um, go forth and do what you can do to make this, to make this better. But it's, it, in the end, it's always the author's choice or almost always the author's choice, what actually to do on the page. And I have definitely found it challenging at times to assess whether an editor's criticism of something I've done is completely valid, or if it's just one person's opinion among many that I can dismiss um, in favor of my own superior opinion. But I've, I've tried very hard to not think that my opinions about my own stuff are the superior opinions, that everybody's opinion matters. And if any of my early readers, whether they're my editor or agent or other people who read early, if any of those people tells me that they have a problem with anything I've written, I address that problem in some way. So when you're working with these authors as an editor over the years, were there any in particular who you thought, now there's the guy I'd like to be like, or there's a gal I'd like to be like, I'd like to write something in in that fashion, or maybe an author that you didn't work with, but you were just following and you thought, there, there's my role model right there. Any Any role models come to mind? Yeah, um, a couple. When when I was first starting out in my career in publishing as a copy editor at Doubleday in the early 1990s, it was the first time I ever read um, truly commercial, best-selling contemporary fiction. Before that, I'd read other things, things that had been assigned to me in college and authors that had been dead for 100 years. Um, but all of a sudden, it was my job to read 
books that were being published now by by popular authors, books that were going to hit bestseller lists. And one of those authors was John Grisham at the the beginning of his career, the early legal thrillers. Mm -hmm. And I had a very small role in working on those books every year. And they were, those books were revelatory to me. They were, they were so unputdownable and they were so fast paced and so compelling um, and so tied to important societal issues and whether those issues were, were gun control or big tobacco or, or sexual assault. They were all issues that I agreed with and the issues and the plot were not one of those things foisted upon the other, but they were reliant on the other. The plot was there because of the issue and the issue was there because of the plot. And that to me was a revelatory moment of realizing what fiction could be. And I have never tried to write sentences or books like John Grisham, um, but I have that idea has stuck with me for decades now. And that's also something that I'm trying to do, um, which is to tie my plots and some issues together in a way that makes them inextricable and part of the same story. You're listening to Chris Pavoni. He's the author of Two Nights in Lisbon, an international thriller you will not want to miss. Well, there's one aspect of your writing that's uh, somewhat different than Grisham's, and that is that uh, you've taken your novels abroad. Um, yes. They're, they're, they're all international thrillers. And I, I assume that that's a place you're probably going to stay as you continue on with, in your profession. Well, largely, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't want to get trapped into I can only write books that are set in Europe. Yeah. Um, but my first, my first novel was set there because that's where we were living when I wrote it. And I thought that that experience of being abroad was to me fascinating and something that I thought some readers wanted to would want to learn about. And after that book, I realized that one of the very satisfying things about the expats as a, as a the writer and hopefully as a reader is that the experience of either moving abroad as in that book or traveling abroad as in my latest book is a disorienting one. And when you confront trouble, when you've left home away from the, safe confines of your family and your friends and police who you can communicate with because you speak the same language and a society where you know how to do everything. You take all of that away and put somebody elsewhere and give them trouble. The trouble is greatly heightened because of the sense of not knowing how to solve problems in a place where, where you don't live. And that to me is a very compelling dynamic. And that's, that's one of the things that I've tried to do a couple of times in other books. Um, and especially in this one where a large part of the plot revolves around the protagonist's inability or unfamiliarity with how to solve a problem in a foreign land. Does that require a different kind of research? What kind of research do you do in preparation for a book like Two Nights in London? I mean, you've got the local authorities over there and you must uh, have to spend some time getting to know what those authorities really look like, what they're called, uh, how they do their business. Yeah, a little. Um, I feel like it's it's less important for me to get the facts right <laughs> than it is to get the feeling right. And right. so I go places. That's what I do. And I go mm -hmm. and I write there. Um, I take my computer wherever I go and I get tremendously inspired when I'm sitting with my laptop 
at an outdoor table at a cafe in a different country. That's where I get most of my best ideas for everything. And feeling the people swirling around me and hearing the language and smelling the smells and tasting the food and the coffee in front of me, all of that contributes to my inventing a new world to to thrust readers into. And I try to get as many facts right as possible, but I also sometimes try to change some facts around to fit the story. And um, I'm not trying to write a travelogue. I'm not trying to write a, a definition of Lisbon or Paris or Luxembourg. I'm trying to give readers a really compelling story and an adventure. Mm. And sometimes that means not being 100% faithful to facts. Well, I must say I really did enjoy being in uh, Lisbon in Portugal with with uh, your protagonist and uh, everyone else uh, involved. Um, Thank you. As I understand it, you actually decided on Lisbon based on a vacation. Yeah, I went there a few years ago with my family, and I, I was not planning on setting a book there. We were just going on vacation. And as it turned out, it, it was a fantastic place, and we were staying in this wonderful hotel that seemed so perfect and the light was perfect and the location and the square was perfect and everything was perfect. And it just occurred to me, this place is so perfect. It would be the ideal setting for something bad to happen. I love stories where <laughs> the placidity of, of what looks like perfection is all of a sudden broken. And you realize over the course of the story that that perfection was never really there to begin with. It just looked that way. So let's get to the book itself, Chris, and talk a little bit about the protagonist. And again, I always say when we're uh, talking with authors of novels that I don't like to give anything away. We we have a no-spoiler alert uh, on the show. <laughs> but uh, but on the other hand, um, I'm willing to go wherever the author wants to take us. And so I'll let you tell us about Ariel, just you know, a thumbnail sketch of I mentioned it briefly in the intro, but maybe somebody missed the beginning of the show. So you can yeah. um, give us your your take on, on this plot and the characters involved. Ariel Price goes on a trip with her new husband to Lisbon. It's a business trip for him, and she's going just to come along to have an adventure. They're recently married, and they have this fantastic tourist weekend and then on Monday morning, he needs to go do the work that he's come to do. Um, and she wakes up and he is already gone. And he left way before he should have. And she can't find any evidence of where he is or what's happened to him. And she's immediately starts inquiring after him, trying to find him, looking for him. And she is met with skepticism from one quarter after another, the hotel staff, the Lisbon police, the American embassy, nobody quite believes that the thing she's saying is a problem is a problem. And that premise of an unbelieved woman, of a woman saying, this is a problem, and of other people saying, I don't really think it is, is the entire reason that this book exists in the world. And the idea that I had was to write a book that looks like it's about one type of thing and turns out to be about something completely different. So this book looks at first to be a book about a man who goes missing on a business trip. And that's not really what this book is about at all. And I too don't want to give away any spoilers. And it, 
to be fair, the flap copy of this book, the descriptions, the blurbs on the book, nowhere does it actually say what this book is about. And that's all very deliberate, that it's a, it's a certain type of a paradigm shift in this book that I don't want to ruin for readers, where you're, you're reading what you think is a story about one thing, and then suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, this book is about something else. Well, there are so many twists and turns that uh, we're, we're going to do our best not to get into any of them, but I would like <laughs> to ask you a question about the protagonist being a woman. Uh, yeah. I've often thought if I was a novelist, uh, how would I be able to handle the description and the feelings and the life and the career of a woman as opposed to a man? And mm-hmm. I pretty much, you know, when I test myself, I, I think I flunk it. I don't think I'd be very good at that. Uh, one reviewer in your case actually said that you were extraordinarily sensitive to Ariel and, and did a beautiful job of relaying exactly who, who she was. And I guess this question can't go too far without also saying that there's some sexual violence involved in this, in this book. And um, your, your decision to insert that and then how you deal with it, I think, is, is what might be interesting for readers who are going to pick up your book at some point. Mm-hmm. Well, I admit that it's, it's difficult to try to imagine what it is like to, to be somebody who's very different from you in any way. Um, but I also feel like that's fundamentally the job of what a novelist does. And there are some degrees of difference that might be, be too large to even think about tackling, but there are other degrees of difference that seem to me to be exactly what I should be tackling. And I, there's, there's a lot of auto fiction in the world where novelists essentially write about themselves and their own experiences and their own worlds populated by people who they know. And some of those books can be fantastic. And some of those books can be horrible, like any types of books. And in a way, the the expats was one of them that that book, even though that protagonist was a woman and the plot had nothing to do with my life, there was a lot in that book that was in fact true to my life and conversations that I had with my wife and experiences I had with my children so much of my life was in, in the expats. Um, this book has none of my life in it. And the experience of the protagonist in dealing with the challenges that she's confronted in the world are not things that I've confronted in my own life. And I did a lot of research to try to get those things right, or at least not wrong, or at least not horribly wrong. And I, I enlisted a lot of readers to help me root out mistakes that I've made and blind spots I had because of my own life experiences that I can't, I know that I can't see clearly things that other people can. Um, And I think all of that is, is part of the process of being a novelist, which is inventing other people and pretending to be them and pretending to see the world from their point of view. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, that's one of the missions of being a novelist. And that's also the mission of being a reader of fiction. That's what you're there for. That's what we're all there for. It's to try to see the world through somebody else's eyes. And as far as the sexual violence issue is concerned, you, you, you did a little bit of reporting through your characters in the third person narrative. Uh, we learned that there's around 300,000 rapes a year. 
Um, mm. And that I thought that was interesting. It's I mean it's it's very clear that that certainly Ariel is very much committed to this, but in a sense, the third person narrative is you. So it's pretty clear that the author has an interest in making sure the the reader understands the the background, the backdrop of this particular issue in the book. Absolutely, uh, that's that's pretty important to me. And I, there are there are plenty of authors who feel the need to be as politically neutral as possible to avoid alienating any readers for any reason. And I certainly respect that choice that a lot of people make, uh, whether it's about novels or television shows or or food or anything that a lot of people feel like their their first and foremost goal is to make sure that they don't say anything that a lot of people are going to disagree with. Um, I don't feel like that's my goal. I don't, I, that's not my mission in the world. I'm not trying to appeal to 100% of the people. I'm trying to write books that are very, very meaningful to the people for whom they're going to be meaningful. And for the people who aren't going to want to hear what I have to say, then there are hundreds of thousands of other books that they can read every year. Very well put. And again, uh, it's very clear from reading this novel that um, the criminal justice system that we all have to deal with when it comes to sexual violence uh, has too often fallen short. And yes. uh, again, uh, we, we don't want to get into the specifics here, but uh, you make that very clear and I was glad I was glad that you did. So when you put this novel together, and, and this is a question I've asked any number of novelists, but it particularly applies to you, Chris, because of the so many very ingenious twists and turns of this book and the way this book turns out, as you say, it's not what you thought it was when you started reading it. Do you, do you map all that out completely <clears throat> beforehand? Or do you uh, let your characters take you there? Maybe not let your characters take you there, but all of a sudden in the middle of the book, uh, as you're writing about one of these characters, uh, you realize something else could be going on here. Yeah, it's a combination of both. Um, I definitely do map out um, a lot of what I think the plot twists are going to be. And it's very important to me to have a lot of plot twists and also to have a couple of very big reveals or paradigm shifts along the way, including at least one at the very end. And I, I do plot out or, or uh, list out what I want the readers, the important things that I want readers to discover along the way of the book. Then in the course of writing it, other things do occur to me. And every time this is, I've written five novels and the same thing has happened each time is that I set out writing and I think I know everything that's going to happen. And then along the way, I discover other things that I want to happen. And I, I don't stick to my original outline because there's no, you don't get a gold star for doing that. Um, the point is to make the best book possible, not the book that matches the outline. Um, so I, I definitely f- let my imagination wander the entire year or two that I'm working on a book. And I, I in fact, rely on it. Like as I've done a few times now, I've set out writing a book where I thought, you know what, I, I don't think I have enough twists in this book, um, in this story. And each time those twists have presented themselves to me in the course of writing. Thank goodness. I'm Bob Custer here at Reader's Corner. We're talking with Chris Pavoni. 
the author of an international bestseller, Two Nights in Lisbon, a thriller you won't want to miss. I not only like to be thrilled when I read a novel, I want to learn something. I want an insight into something that I've never thought about before. And the best or at least one of the examples that I can think of in reading your book is so small and buried in your text that I'm sure no one could find it without spending a heck of a lot of time. But there's a scene in your novel where Ariel is trying to figure out uh, one of her husband's the, – the wife of one of her husband's friend. I think the name is Tori. And mm-hmm. and the, the quote – and this isn't going to make sense to a lot of people I guess who haven't read everything, but I hope we can talk about it. She says about Tori, one small decision at a time until self-care is all you do. <laughs> <laughs> and it just seems like there's there's way too many people in this world today who who are so focused on the self and not <laughs> focused on the other. And yeah. I thought that uh, that little message stuck right there in the middle of a book that many people might not even think about was just a great way of reminding all of us that mm-hmm. there's something a lot more to this world than, um, you know, what kind of car you're driving today or where you're going to eat at a restaurant tonight. And you, yeah. you did a great job of that. Thank you. Yeah. That, that's a theme that I, I hope I don't beat people up on. Sure. Um, but it, it is a, a theme presented in a few different ways over the course of this book that we we do have responsibilities to one another other than making our own hashtag best life for ourselves and bragging about it. And I think sometimes increasingly it's easy to lose track of the things we owe to one another um, as, as people inhabiting the same world. And um, I feel like a large part of, of this, of the plot of this book and my reason for wanting to write it, in the first place and for the central plot elements, all of that is a reflection of that idea that there are things that we owe each other. There is a certain amount of respect that we owe everybody. And this novel is, is my way of trying to, to give that. Listeners are going to be tired of hearing me say this once again, but every time I have a novelist on and we get into a discussion like this, I, I always uh, quote, uh, something that isn't aren't my words, but I've never forgotten them. Fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth, <laughs> and I I think there's so much to that line. And um, again, I try to choose my novels based on uh, a good fiction that also uh, tells the truth, and yours certainly certainly does that. E- each chapter of your story is time specific, like like it's ten twenty seven a.m. in the morning or whatever. Uh, yeah. Why, why did you do that? I thought it added some suspense to the to the overall feeling of the novel. Maybe there were other thoughts as well on your part. Yeah, I, the the ticking clock here. Um, I want to keep reminding people is ticking, and yeah. that there is a deadline on all of this. And I think when you remind readers of the time constantly, you're reinforcing the idea that this is an urgent situation. And I I don't want the text to read urgently all the time. I don't want there to be nonstop action because I think that's exhausting and not really credible. And there's no room to develop character or tell backstory there. I want to be able to do all of those things, but I also want readers to definitely sense urgency all the time. And 
opening each chapter with a timestamp is a way of reminding people every minute counts. Yeah, boy, that was that was well done. So Thank have you. you chosen a location for your next novel? <laughs> <laughs> where where are we going next, Chris? <laughs> To tell the truth, I haven't chosen it, and I'm working on two different books right now, and I'm waiting for one of them to knock the other one out. Like I put them <laughs> in a boxing ring together to see who's who's stronger and can last longer. So I don't entirely know which book I'm going to write next. You know, the New York Times, I think it's the New York Times, does this thing where they uh, they ask an author to talk about their, their bedtime reading, and, and it's like four or five paragraphs long, and there's all kinds of novels, many of them classical, others not. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, uh, and again, the interesting part about that question is uh, how much time is there to read novels when you're writing novels? I mean, how long did this one take you to write? Uh, I don't know, two years maybe. Yeah. I, it's hard to say. I interrupt myself a lot. And sure. for me, writing is also the the large bulk of the writing experience is editing for me. I go through a lot of drafts with yeah. a lot of different feedback. And so the first draft tends to take me somewhere like nine to 12 months. And then the editing takes a little longer than that. Yeah. And in between, I've often interrupted to promote a book or sure. take the summer off or whatever. So it's somewhere like two years of of full-time work for yeah. each of my books, but not not just 24 straight months. Yeah. And when you're writing, do you have a, a particular regimen, like you have to start at 7 a.m. and finish at noon, or or how, how does that work, or whenever whenever you feel like writing? No, I, I try to write every day in the uh -huh. morning. Uh -huh. um, and I, I also like to leave home to do it. And I, I get to where I want to work at 8.30 or 9 in the morning, and uh -huh. I, I work until – lunchtime. Um, and then I, I tend to have lunch with people or mm -hmm. do other things in the world, talk to somebody <laughs> instead yeah. of just my right. own head. Um, and then I spend the afternoon doing other things that are often authorial jobs that are not original writing, which there's a surprising amount of. Yeah. So I, I do try to stick to a regimen and I do try to treat it somewhat like a job, but it's also, mm -hmm. it's it's a very liberating thing to not have a responsibility to be in a specific time every day doing the same thing with the same people. And I also try to appreciate that. Um, I've tried to spend a lot of time with my children. Uh, I do a lot of cooking and that means a lot of grocery shopping. And I, I don't think the world does not need more and more books by Chris Pavoni. What the world <laughs> needs from me are the best possible books I could write. And I'm not in any particular rush to deliver those, whether my career is going to end up being 10 published novels or 20 published novels is not going to make any difference to anybody. Um, the important thing is for those books to be good. And in the meantime, for me to live a satisfying life in yeah. other ways. Well, they are very good. There's no question about that. So is there any time left for reading other people's works? Oh, definitely. What yeah, you, I read all read? the time. What kind I of think things? some people, some novelists don't read other fiction when they're writing because yeah. they worry that the another voice is going yeah. to interfere with their own. Right. Um, I don't worry about that. Uh, I, I don't know why, but I, I tend to read the best possible books I can find when I'm writing. The people who have the language I prefer the most, the, the types of insights I want to try to get mm -hmm. um, from my own writing to, to remind me that the bar is high 
and that there's something to aim for. And when I'm, I'm not writing is when I tend to read a lot of material that's, that's not there because of the quality of the prose, but because of, of the plot. And I, I consume a lot of those books as well in one form or another, either skimming or reading or audiobooks. Um, and I, I'm never not reading at least one novel. And often I'm also reading a book that is yet to be published. Um, and I'm doing that right now, a book that will be published, I think next June or something like that by Danielle Trissoni. And I'm enjoying it very much. Now that's the kind of uh, situation where a publisher might ask you to comment on the book after you've read it. Cause obviously you've got some of those on the back of your book. That's what we always, I always go to those to see who's commenting on this book. That's kind of important. Yeah, it, it is kind of important. And, and yes, that's, that's what a, a good deal of my reading is. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, a good deal of the listeners who are currently with us at Reader's Corner, a good deal of their reading ought to be Two Nights in Lisbon. Take it from me, it's something that will keep you up at night until, of course, you want to uh, go to sleep. Chris, <laughs> I can't thank you enough for joining me today. It's great talking with you, not just about the book because, of course, we uh, don't want to give anything away, but just about um, the life and career of a writer. Uh, you've done a masterful job of helping us understand that. Thanks for joining oh. us today at Reader's Corner. Thank you. It's been a blast. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. <laughs>